You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. And so I began to think we need to understand together what does family look like. And over the next few weeks, I want to look at three different types of family. We see scripturally that the church universally is the family of God, the kingdom of God. We are a family together. Does that make sense? So when I pray for the Grove right down the street, the Grove Church, it's not like a place called the Grove. It's, it's a church called the Grove. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? The Grove. I'm just chilling in the Grove. When I pray for the Grove, I'm praying for family. Make sense? But there's a different way that they live and function than the way we live and function because we're in a different house. But we're the same family, okay? So there's the universal family, the universal church, like all the body of Christ who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. There's that church. So we're going to look at how does that church function and what, is, what does it look like as God is the Father? And then I also want to look at how does City Lights as the local church, how do we function? But I also want to look at the home. What are the roles and responsibilities biblically that our home should look like? See, the, the truth is I can look at most of our families and say, okay, I go into Ryan and Amy's house. It's a little different. They have a different way of life, and their kids will grow up with a different way of life. Ashley and I, Ben and Crystal, all of us have come from different homes. But biblically, we can all have the same basic structure with a little bit of different functions. Does that make sense? What I want to look at is how biblically those things that a family should look like. What is the father's rule? What is the mother's rule? What does it mean to be a brother and sister? I want to look at that a little bit down the road. But before we get into all those things, all those dynamics of a family and functioning as the body of Christ, the family of Christ, together, I want to look at, okay, what does it mean? How do I begin to get into the family of God? How do I start? We should start at the beginning. Does that make sense? So if we could, uh, how do I belong to, how do I become a part of this family of God? Let's look in Genesis chapter 2 because we're starting at the beginning, so we should start at the beginning. It says in verse 17, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all livestock and the birds and the, uh, of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in the place of his flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is the last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So here we see in Genesis the first family, the first family unit, man and wife. But it wasn't just man and wife that, like, like we know today. They were in perfect unity, not only with each other, but with the father. Because God created them, and he, we see throughout Scripture that he dwelt with them. He dwelt in the garden with them. So we have God who creates man and woman to represent who he is. He says in our image. So he represents the Trinity through creating man and woman to have unity, and we get to have unity with the Father. So in the beginning, we have this perfect example of a family, the beginning family. Now, if you guys can all go through your Sunday school storybooks and go back to 
you know, back to your childhood. You've heard this story. We all know the story. She eats the fruit, the forbidden fruit. We see sin enter into the world, right? But we see Eve sins and Adam sins. They bite this fruit. The one tree that God said don't bite from, they take from it. They're tempted by Satan. And so they take from it. And so we see sin enter their heart. And then I want to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. The second half of verse 22, it says, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and the east, and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim of a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So, we see God creates man and woman, this perfect family unit. They're in, in relationship with the Father. We see that when, he, when the Father comes and sees what they have done, it's this, is, this imagery of him walking in the cool of the day with them. And he sees that they're not there, and he wants to know why they're hiding from them, which God already knows because he's God, but let's not get into that detail right now. But we see there's this perfect unit, and they sin, and, and God says, look, in this garden is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They have etern- they have they know evil now. And I cannot let them live eternally. I cannot let them have eternal life and be in this garden with a tree of eternal life. So they have to be out of this garden. See, God created us. Let me let me let me explain this a little bit. You might think this is this is bizarre talking about family. Why are we talking about this right now? See, God created us for his presence. And created us as a family unit to reflect his righteousness, his goodness, who he is, his holiness. We're supposed to reflect it in unity as a family together. Now, unrighteousness has taken root in the, in the heart of man, okay? God did not want sin to live forever, so he, cast, he sent us out and now we have death. We see in scripture that the wages of sin is death. You might think, why? Think about a world. I, I, I was thinking about this this week. Think about a world where a sinful thought can take root in your heart and you know you'll never die. Think of what kind of world we'd live in if sin began to root up and consume who you are and you know there's no consequence for it. There's no ending. I want you to think about this for a minute because I got, maybe I got to explain. If there's sin in my heart and there's no consequence I can do whatever I want for as long as I want and hurt as many people as I want. There'll be no end to sin. So we might look and say, well, sin or death, this is a very mean thing for God to cause because they ate a fruit. The truth is it's a very loving thing that God created. There has to be an end to the amount of sin that consumes your heart. I cannot let somebody have sin rooting in their heart for eternity and grow forever because that's pure chaos and the opposite of who I am. The opposite of my image, my holiness, my righteousness. Does that make sense? So here we see this first family come into existence because God breathed his life, his presence into them to reflect who he is, the essence of who God is. And then sin takes root and he says, I can't allow that to grow forever. So I have to cut it off. Death has to exist. See, God is so holy. And now man is separated from relationship with the Father. Because of sin. See, the first family here now is broken. They're fragmented. 
They're separated from God's presence. They don't reflect who he is perfectly anymore. I want to look at this, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is made plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that he has made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creator or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see in these two passages that God has created his, his image, his perfect righteousness, his love, his mercy, his, everything good of who he is because God is holy. God is, there's no fault in God. God created us to reflect that, and because we chose the natural things, and we chose ourselves, God, we no longer reflect him, and we're vile, and we're the opposite of his, his, does that make sense? We're ungodly, we're unrighteous, and scripture says that every one of us has sinned. Let me, let me make a clarifying statement here this morning. Half of you are probably squirming and hate this message right now, because we as a culture hate the word sin. We don't talk about it, we don't use it, we don't want to it's an uncomfortable word. It's not sin. No, they did something bad. Or that's, you know, that's not very, you know, morally correct. That's not very nice. We don't want to think in terms that you and I sin. I sin. I'm saying this as your pastor. I sin. I'm okay with accepting that reality, that I have sinned, that I'm broken, that I'm unrighteous in my own self. Hopefully you can accept that same reality too this morning. See, we live in this world. Let me explain why I think that we don't like to use this word. Um, I wanted to show a video this morning, but I don't have it. When we first started this church, Ben and I went downtown, and we, we asked a few people, because we just wanted to get a survey with the camera. We're like, you can look us up on our YouTube page. It's like one of the earliest, one of the worst quality videos we've ever made. It's very grainy, but you can find us on our YouTube page. It's, we went around people, and we said, you know, if you think of God, what, what would you describe God to look like? If, if you could create a God... What, what would he look like? What would your God be like? And it's funny because I went through and I watched this the other, the other day, and it's hilarious. This one guy downtown is like, you know, um, he'd just be like a really cool guy to hang out with. You know, my God would be like, you know, he's not sending everybody to hell, you know. Um, as long as you don't do like, I don't know, don't murder anyone or no hardcore drugs, you know, just the way life's supposed to be. That's literally what he said. No hardcore drugs. The way life's supposed to be. So his, let me, let me, I, apparently life is supposed to have non-hardcore drugs in it. So here, here, let me, let me, let me tell you why we hate the word sin. I saw that when I watched that video this week, and there's other people, and they all say the, the same heart cry coming out of them. If I could create a God, he would look at the world and only judge the things I don't do. That guy hasn't murdered anyone, or maybe he has, but he, he, at least he thinks murder's wrong. You know, just as long as you haven't murdered anyone or no hardcore drugs. So that guy hasn't murdered anybody and does some minor drugs. 
So he's thinking, if I can create a God, I want a God who smokes weed and does the minor drugs and hasn't murdered anybody to, to not judge me, but judge everybody who maybe has murdered or maybe has done the things that I haven't done. This is the world that we live in. We don't view ourselves as sinful because we haven't murdered anyone. We haven't done the hardcore drugs. But the truth is each one of us have lied, cheated, been greedy, had lust, had all these desires in some form or another in our hearts and control some of the actions that we do. That test that you cheated on, that, that friend that you got in a fight with, that, that person that you cursed out. There's all these forms of anger and violence and corruption and sin because it's the opposite of the character and the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God. Does that make sense? Each one of us have sinned. This is, might sound like a hard message this morning, but it's the truth. Let me start with that, okay? No hardcore drugs, the things that I don't do, you know. That's the God that I want. See, culture only seems to outcry against extreme cases of depravity or, or cases of righteousness. Let me explain that a little bit. Look at the things that our culture gets all offended about. Our world, though, we get angry about murderers, about rapists, about those extreme cases that the moral majority doesn't do. And we get angry about those who are saying, this is righteousness, this is truth, this is what God wants, because they're uncomfortable for me too. We live in this world that wants to, to they're really bad, and they're really bad. The rest of us, we're good. We don't sin. We're just good moral people. We got some minor issues, but we're okay. Does that make sense? I hope you understand what I'm saying this morning. We live in this world that wants to live in extremes, that only these two extremes are the ones that we can't deal with. Only the righteous, super, super righteous, and only the super crazy psychopaths who are killing everybody. Sin is not doing what's wrong according to cultural moral standards. Sin is hostility to the person of God and his character. See, when David sinned and when he had an affair, when he slept with Bathsheba, he didn't cry out repentance to Bathsheba or to her family, even though he had her husband killed, the cover-up for the whole mess. He didn't cry out to repentance to them. He said, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. Because he recognized that thing inside of him cried out against the character and the goodness of a holy God. It was revulsion against a good, perfect king. The maker of David, he was in opposition against when he did those actions. So sin, the, thing, the things that you and I think, well, that's just, you know, I, I had a bad day or I was angry and blah, blah, blah. I was a little bit jealous and, you know, minor issues. Those things in us are the exact opposite of a good and holy God. Okay? I want you to get this picture before we move on here this morning. See, you and I deserve separation from God. I hear often in circles, you know, why would a good God send anyone to hell? And I'm not here this morning to argue about hell and all that stuff. That's not my point. But the question, I think, is a better question to ask. Not why would a good, righteous God send anyone to hell. Why would a good, loving, righteous God redeem anybody? Why? Why would God say, I'm all that is pure, all that is righteous. There is no fault in me. And you are vile, depraved, seeking your own constantly. Why would he allow them to live? If I was God, let me just be honest. I'd say, eh, scratch, start over, wipe them all out. Just being true. If I'm perfect, there's nothing wrong with me, and there's no obligation on my end to them, 
Why would he say, you know what, you are sick and depraved, you're sinful at nature, but I'm going to extend mercy and grace and say, you know, I look at you as righteous anyway. Why? He doesn't have to. But in grace, he does. We'll get to that in a minute. That's part B of a message, so just so you know, it doesn't, it's not all scary and yelling sin, okay? I think we need to understand that God forgiving us is not the same thing as me forgiving Ben or me forgiving Jimmy or me forgiving my wife. You know, shouldn't we all just forgive? Why can't God just forgive everybody? Everybody has eternity with him and God just loves everybody all the time, no matter if they ask for it or not. The truth is, there are moments in my life where I need to forgive somebody whether they ask for forgiveness or not. Why, though? Because I have sinned against other people. I want that same thing for me. There's a moral obligation for me to forgive because I need forgiven. Our holy, perfect God does not need forgiveness. There's no responsibility on his end to forgive anybody. I hope that makes sense. I hope you understand what I'm saying this morning. God does not need to forgive anybody. He is holy and perfect, and we have to understand this if we're going to even begin to understand a life change to what it is to be a part of the family of God. Romans 3.22, I want, I want you to read this. I read 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I want to, I want to start at verse 22, and I want to read a little more. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in, G- in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. But to show and demonstrate his righteousness, his goodness, his love, his perfection, he found a way from the beginning of the earth to find a way to give us grace and forgive us. He was the just and the justifier. That means he's... He's the, he's the one who went to court, and he's also the judge. He's the one that went for us on our behalf. He's the one that paid the penalty for our sin, and he's the one that redeemed our sin. Does that make sense this morning? Be- to show us how good he is. He just chose to. He just wanted to do it. Ephesians 1 through 3, and I want to look at this. or one, Chapter 1, verse 3. This is where the message starts to get a little more happier and positive, just so you know. If you guys have been hanging on like a wild roller coaster ride, just click, 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 click. That's a big drop, you know. We're, we're good here, okay? Ephesians 1, 3, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through, Christ, through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
which he lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. That verse should hit us because it says from the beginning of time, he has planned to reunite us, to bring us back in through his grace. He has adopted us as sons and daughters. Through the New Testament, we see multiple times, Paul talks about you and I, when we come to Christ, God has adopted us as sons and daughters. And I love this imagery. Let me explain why. Adoption, friend, friends of mine on Facebook, I saw their recent post, they've been trying adoption. And so they posted this GoFundMe account. For them to adopt a kid, they need $6,000 just to advertise and $22,000 after the advertisement's there for the rest of the fees. So $28,000 they're trying to figure out a way to get so that they can go and adopt somebody into their family. See, this is drastically different than the couple that's like, whoops, what do we just do? We're going to have a baby. Oh, no. This couple is raising everything, and they're gonna, it's going to cost them everything to try to bring somebody into their family. They don't have to do it. They can just say, we can do our own thing for a long time. But they want somebody to give their love and their affection to, so they adopt, they're trying to adopt somebody. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. God has no obligation to any of us, but he chose to adopt us as sons and daughters. He looks at us in our filth, he looks at us in our unholiness, our unrighteousness, and he says, it's going to cost me a lot. It's going to cost me the cross. But I'm choosing to look at you and say, I want you to be in my family. He, he looks at you and I and he says, I want you. I want you. This is what he said to us while you and I were in our junk. He says, I still want you. This is a God who looks at us and he, there's no obligation. My wife and I do not have to adopt anybody. We don't. It's just the way it works. It's the way adoption works. I hope you understand this this morning. Galatians says this, though. He says that now we're adopted as sons and daughters. We're we're sons and daughters. Galatians talks about this idea, idea of adoption as sons so that we're no longer slaves, but we're sons. And we have an inheritance. Talks about Christ being our brother. The you and I, even though we were messed up, Now we have an inheritance with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even though we're sinful and vile and the opposite, he says, I'm going to pay something that covers that up, and now you're righteous and you're holy and you're my son and my daughter. This is the gospel that we sing about. This is what grace is. This is how we become the family of God. The reason I started out so heavy with understanding that we all have to recognize that we sin is because I feel feel like we don't really get the adoption side of things until we understand what we've been adopted from. You look at the story of the prodigal son. He had to recognize at a moment, hey, I'm in filth. I'm in pig's filth right now. I'm broke. I'm poor. I'm disgusting. My father has a lot more for me. 
he had to recognize what he was sitting in so that he could run to something much better. This morning when I say you and I have sinned and fallen short, we need to recognize the filth that we sit in in our own and recognize that there's a loving father that's running toward us and says, come on, come on back in. I'll put a ring on your finger. I'm making my family and you'll have my inheritance. That's the God that we serve. You and I are no longer slaves to sin, but we're sons and daughters once we've received Christ, once we've recognized the filth that we came from. If our worship team can come forward, I have a few more thoughts here as we, we close this morning. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. I'm gonna, is it okay if I tell a really disgusting and semi-funny story right now? <laughs> Everybody's like real sad. Like, I don't know if you can do that at this time of a service. I don't know. The worship team's on stage. It should be really serious right now. Um, think, I'm just, I, this literally just popped in my head. So, Jimmy, I know you're, you're queasy and you don't like disgusting stories, so you might want to leave right now. Parents will do anything for their kids, even if it's gross. They really will. And I've got a ton of these stories as a parent. But let me tell you one that happened to me, and this is this is an embarrassing story. I might have shared this before you, before here or not. This is the most embarrassing moment of my life. So if you've heard it before, you get to hear it again. I was uh, feeling real sick one day. I'm not going to go through all the details. And I was driving with my sister in the back seat in my car. My car was like almost a year old. Like it was pretty new. And um, and this girl that I wanted to date. She was in the passenger seat. I'm feeling sick, and I'm like, I can't take you home. i got to go to my house, and I'll let my mom take you home. That was really awesome, wasn't it? Let, let my mom drive you home. But I'm driving down this road, and uh, I'm feeling it. I'm flying down this dirt road. My house is at the end of this straight dirt road, straight shot. And I'm just, I have a stick shift. I'm just, I'm going. I, I, I need to get home. And all of a sudden, I realize I can't hold this anymore. And this is the part that's gross. I start, I, I go to throw up out the window. The window's up. And I throw up on the window. I throw up in the gauges of my car. I throw up on myself. I throw up on my hand as I'm shifting. And I'm still driving like a champ. I'm, I'm not slowing down for anything. I'm throwing up and shifting my car, just flying down this road. And I look over, and that girl and my sister are both, like up against the, the passenger window they are just like panicking and they, they, the funny thing is in my car the uh, the window button because it's, it's a two door and the window button's in the middle, that's covered in throw up so they can't even get out of the smell right now like their window's up and they're like oh god, oh god. they're like looking for air I say that story to say this though, it's, it's a ridiculous story I get I pull into my driveway, my mom comes out and like they were already out of the car like instantly as soon as we we weren't even stopped and they were jumping out that door I come I, I go walk in the house I said mom I just threw up you gotta take her home and so my mom takes her home in her car of course not mine I, I, get, I get cleaned up and I feel great like I guess it was, I just ate something that was bad and literally you could see what I ate it was bad and so I think like I'm like oh, man I'm, I'm at home I'm like, how am I going to clean this mess up? Like, I just got this car. The next day I go outside thinking this is going to be a pain and I'm probably going to lose it again. 
My mom had already cleaned it out, spotless. Somehow, she cleaned it all out. I did a similar thing before that when I was a kid in her car. I, I'm a, I got sick in her car. No joke. They tried, they tore, the, it was like an old station wagon. They tore the seats out of that car and let it like soaked it and everything. They sold that car a month later because of how bad it was, right? My mom cleaned my car in such a way that you, you I've never smelled anything. It smells great. It smelled, well, it smelled great at the time. It was, she cleaned it out spotless. I say that ridiculous story to say this. You and I are covered in our own filth, and our father gets his hands dirty, and he cleans us up. He cleaned us up. I didn't want to clean myself up, but my mom stepped in and cleaned it up. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that is offering you a chance, saying, I want you to be cleaned up. You just got to let me do it for you. You got to respond to me and let me clean you up. Let, let me show you how much I love you. I will get dirty for you. When you won't get dirty for yourself, when you won't fix yourself, I will do it for you. That's the grace of the gospel. We were enemies of righteousness. See, I want you to see the reason I started at the beginning here. We were created for unity with the Father, we were created for righteousness. We messed it up, and we deserve eternal separation from him. And he stepped in and said, I'm going to redeem you and make you part of my family. I'm adopting you as sons and daughters to where you get to experience my righteousness. You get to experience my love. You get to taste it and see that I'm good. You don't have to live in the filth of your sin. You're no longer slaves to sin, but you're free and you're sons and daughters who have an awesome inheritance in the kingdom. You and I have been reconciled to him through the cross. If you're a believer this morning, I want you to recognize the gift of it. I can never preach grace enough. I can never preach the cross enough. It is the central figure of why I live it's the most important thing of why this church is here. It's not about programs. It's not about advocacy in the, in the culture. It's, all those things are nice and good. We exist because of the grace of the cross. And I won't ever stop preaching it. We need, if you're a believer, you need to recognize the gift that you have. You need to realize that unity with a good and holy father, you need to recognize that you have that. I think it's funny that we tend to take this idea of the God's presence and make it something really light. We try to make it something kind of normal. The truth is when we look at scripture and we see that God reveals himself here and there, when we see God's presence, people fall to their face and worship. They don't take it lightly. Isaiah said when he's in God's presence, when he has a, a vision of the presence of God, he says, woe to me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And God responds by sending an angel with a burnt coal from the altar and says, I'm purifying your lips. Go speak. Go speak on my behalf. That's imagery of what Christ has done for us. We are people of unclean, filthy lips. And God says, I'm taking something from the altar and I'm making you pure. I'm making you my representative on the earth. That's beautiful. We need to, we need to fall to our faces sometimes in God's presence saying, God, you're good. I'm not worthy of this, but you have called me righteous. I say that because if you're part of this church, if you're, if you're part of the church, if you're part of the family of God, we need to recognize what we're part of. It's big. It's important. 
We don't deserve it, but he's given it to us. If you're not, this morning I'm telling you all this because I want you to know that that is available for you here and now. You can be part of the family of God. You can look at the sin that you've been trying to fight on your own and say, God, I'm going to let you clean this up and I'm going to serve you. I want unity with the Father. Jesus, let me say this, we've said this before at the church, Jesus did not save you so that you don't go to hell. Jesus saves you so that you can have relationship with him, so that you can experience him. This is not how do I get out of hell, this is how do I get Jesus, how do I get the Father, how do I get relationship with him, that's all this is. We tend to make this thing a, a turn or burn message, that's not, the, that's not what it is. So you can, you can do your own thing and be separated, or you can come to him and have eternal life. When he, when he casts them out of the garden, he says, I can't give sin eternal life. I can't let it exist forever. But then on the cross, on a different tree, he says, I'm giving them a way to be righteous and so that sin is no more and they can experience life forever. I, ho- I hope you're understanding that the Bible is a beautiful thing when you understand what's happening, when you understand what he's done. This morning, I, w- I want to pray with you. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that if you haven't accepted Christ, I would love to pray with you this morning down here. If, if there's something else you want to pray for, I want to pray with you about that too. But I want to, I want you to say, you know what? I need Christ. I'm a sinner and I need saved. I'm separated from God's grace and I want to be connected with who he is. I want to experience his holiness.